Welcome to Legends of VFX, a show where we'll be having conversations with leaders, thinkers, and innovators connected to the world of visual effects. Through these conversations, we'll be learning from our guests' experiences, lessons, and what it really takes to get those pixels up on our screens. Hey guys, this is Bilali Mack, and welcome back to part two of our two-part series with Julia Marshall. Enjoy. What do you think the role of a filmmaker or an artist is during tumultuous times or times of upheaval and in ways that they can use that craft to try to bring about change? We obviously, we talked about call to action a little bit, but like I was curious about your thoughts on filmmaking and artists and how they can use their talents to try to bring some awareness or use it during a time of upheaval. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something that uh, that I've been repeating to people that um, uh, my, my high school sculpture teacher, who's like one of my biggest mentors in the world told me, and it's that art scares the shit out of people, you know, especially Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Yeah, go into that a little bit. Art scares the shit out uh, of people. I, I mean, like in that. the case of filmmaking, because it scales really well. Um, and, and also- Got it. Uh, to get messages yeah, to get out. messages out. You know, it's like I, I could, you know, maybe if, if I tried my hardest in one day during a protest, I could talk to a couple hundred people, um, you know, but am I going to change all those people's minds? Yeah. Am I going to, you know, are they going to remember what we talked about? Maybe not. But using film, I can hit, you know, just in my social media, 250,000 people in a week uh, and leave them with something that, that is memorable. Um, yeah. You know, so that, that's what, you know, the, 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 the megaphone is really loud with this art form uh, and, and, and art in general. Um, but, you know, it, it's why film has been used for propaganda for so long, you know, for yes. over a hundred years. That's true. Um, yeah. Is, Nazis use yeah. it like I everybody's. Mean, Len, Lenny Riefenstahl. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it is because when you can get people to forget that they're watching something, you gain access to their emotions in a way that you just, you just can't in, in, in any other way. Um, and so, you know, if, if you use this tool responsibly, um, you know, not as a tool of propaganda, but a tool to expose people to new ideas and allow them to decide how they feel about it. You know, if you can really expose people to, uh, to the truth um, in, in, in a way that uh, is in their native language, that's where you find change. And so, you know, it's like my goal yeah. here isn't to make propaganda to get Donald Trump out of, out of office. Because um, to make propaganda would mean that I'm, I'm manipulating something. You know, in, in this case, uh, yeah. you know, especially yeah. in the case of Donald Trump in the last couple of months, he's dug his own grave. You know, he, he, yeah, you he has said to, you so much dumb literally... shit in the last couple of months that all you have to do <laughs> is just repeat it. <laughs> You know? Just screen. Uh, literally, my my favorite thing is like people aren't even talking shit about him at this point. You just screenshot his tweets and put it, and he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Why are you guys misrepresenting what I said?" You're like, "Dude, it's a screenshot of what you actually well, said. Here, no one's misrepresenting here's anything." The thing, and why context is everything, uh, and and why this is gonna this is gonna get really important the closer we get to November is Donald Trump you know, said all this dumb shit about coronavirus for months, 
while trying to pump the stock market, um, which you know that was his goal. He measures his presidency by the stock market, and that, in my opinion, is is why he took so long to take coronavirus seriously. And so, if we're getting close to the election, and there are a disproportionate amount of people in his base who've been you know really destroyed by by the impacts of coronavirus, and all you have to do is just repeat his tweets from a couple of months so that so that they can recontextualize their world and make their own decision that's where you really find power and a message that can be influential yeah yeah using the truth i mean it is his truth even though it's it's the past of what he said yeah in that moment you have an opportunity to use his truth to show his people in this platform what what he did actually affected the country in a really, really bad yeah, way. Like I don't, I don't want to hate um, them. I want to help them. No. And that's the thing. I think it's really important for people to realize that uh, people that get galvanized behind a party or behind a message or behind a team, they, they aren't bad people. Like they just, they just really, really truly believe in one side and, I don't think anything is completely one-sided. I think everyone needs to kind of come together. People need to talk together and realize what they actually want and what they need. And I think right now, no offense. And no, you know what? Fuck it. Offense. The shit that Trump is talking about right now is nonsense. People are dying. And it's obvious that he does not care about the lives of he, those he doesn't people. care he because it's about. disproportionately a minority problem because it's also a socioeconomic yeah. problem so the moment that he identified yeah. that coronavirus was was uh, disproportionately impacting black people and minorities he stopped giving a shit yeah and and those people more often are not voting for him so i think it's always good to try to align like look at a person and what they're doing and try to make sure that you are looking at also what their incentives are to do those things, right? Because that's where you figure out like why they're doing things and for what reasons. Um, and as far as the idea of, I think I'm just going to segue a little bit, but we, we talked a little bit about the power of messages to be sent through filmmaking and through art. I, I kind of want to just touch on the idea of this as far as media right now there's a big movement with people in advertising and storytellers talking about black creatives and black artists telling black stories right and one of the things that interests me about that is they're talking also about black ownership right black companies owning the media and the messaging that is being sent to other people of color, black, you know, black, uh, other black people, specifically what we're talking about and how, what are some of your thoughts on black ownership, right? Just a few things like, yeah, there, there are some black cable companies and a lot of this for me, I'll give you just a little bit of backstory. It comes from a story I read about of this uh, American businessman, a uh, person of color, black, black man. Um, his name is Byron Allen. And he sued Comcast. I don't know if you heard about this, but he was suing Comcast um, because Comcast had created this agreement with the NAACP, and you might want to look this up, the NAACP and the Urban 
I think it was the Urban League or Urban Association League, um, uh, about the merger with NBC, right? So Comcast was was purchasing M- NBC, and they had signed this agreement with the NAACP, and Al Sharpton actually signed it. Um, and they were basically saying that we are doing this merger. The federal government is going to support it because we also support African-American entrepreneurs and African-American communities. And they created this venture fund for $20 million to help African-American entrepreneurs in the media industry. So this guy, Byron Allen, uh, a black businessman in media entertainment who owns a lot of black and like media companies and cable companies, he decides to sue Comcast because he says that that's not true and that the Comcast basically is lying because they actually spend $11 billion on cable license, on licensing for uh, cable networks. So they have a portfolio of cable networks and they spend $11 billion and they only spend $5 million of that $11 billion on black cable companies and black audience when in reality, they are pulling a, a, around $2 billion from black communities. So disproportionately, they're not spending as much in relation to what they're getting. So he sues and it, it happens, he ends up having to sue the NAACP as well because they were part of the agreement. But what do you feel about that idea of black ownership? Because he says that it's really important for black owners to own the media that is being sold. and. I can tell you what happened at the end of the actually the suing. They actually end up settling today oh, well. on this, and and he won. Uh, he won, and he ended up uh, he ended up winning essentially. Yeah, I, you can go into the details about it, but he won. He sued against Comcast, and they won. And I think it's really important for people to think about this idea of that the black ownership of black media, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier about about revisionist history that you know history has very largely been written from uh, rather american history is it has largely been written from a single point of view uh and it's the point of view of, of white men um you know but obviously that isn't our reality that doesn't reflect our our reality um and so now we have a moment where um black people can tell our stories the way that they should be told um and and not used opportunistically to extract value from a demographic. Um, yeah. So you know, I think it's I think it's it's incredibly important, especially because uh, you know the the if you look at the at, at the data, all of a sudden in in the last decade, uh, all the media companies woke up and were like, oh my god, black people go to the movies. You know, oh my God, we can, we can get money from them. They go to the movies. Um, And so, you know, if we don't uh, carefully control what's going on there, uh, we will have opportunism extracting value from us um, and bastardizing our stories. So, uh, so I think that's one reason why it's very important. And then the other is opportunity. So you know, one one thing I'm I'm dealing with right now is um, in the commercial industry, as I'm 
you know, talking to different production companies, the industry has a, has a massive diversity problem um, where, yeah. uh, you know, just looking at different production companies' rosters, there are so few black directors out there in the commercial world that it's, it's unbelievable. Dude, it's, it's, unbelievable. it's really unbelievable. <laughs> and, and part of it is, uh, you know, if you don't foster black talent and give people opportunities, then there aren't as many black directors, um, you know, to reach, to, to, to cross the barrier to entry into that industry. You know, I, I was very fortunate to have the opportunities to, uh, to land where I am right now. You know, I took every opportunity and I worked very hard, but I had uh, a mother and father who supported me from day one when I was nine years old and said, I want to be a filmmaker, you know? Um, so, you know, the more we have black owned companies or minority owned companies in general, the more opportunity people will have, uh, people of color will have to, uh, you know, to really learn, learn the craft and hone their skills so that they can, uh, you know, get past that barrier to entry. Yeah. And for me, I think it's also a shift in a mindset because like, I think a lot of people think that if you're, you're like, Oh, I need to make a, uh, if you're, if we're trying to make a black, like if me and you got together and we were like, we we're going to make a, a production company or some kind of media company where it was black owned, it would be like, Oh, but like, why are you guys trying to control all of the black stories? And why do you guys want to, it's like, oh, you guys are actually like segregating black stories. You don't want to work on any white stories. And that has nothing to do with it. I think for the beginning of this country, the stories that have been told for every demographic have come from white people. White men. And so, White men. I'm not going to yes, go. First of all, I'm, you know, I, I have nothing wrong with white men. It's just the reality of the situation. Yeah, I got. A, I, have, I have best friends that are white guys, right? There's no. There's you nothing do? wrong Whoa. with white men. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I know not a lot of people know that. Don't don't let that secret out. But I'm saying it here on the podcast. I got white friends. Um, <laughs> but but the thing is that, like, yeah, those those stories have been shaped by other people and. One quote from this guy, Byron Allen, that really resonated with me when I was thinking about it. I was like, for a second, I kind of was like, yeah, I mean, I guess it is kind of like, we're like, yeah, we get, we're like, black people are the only people that are allowed to make black stories. And everybody else has to fill out a form and let us know if they want to tell that black story and we'll tell them if we like it or not, right? And, and my thing was like, I, I saw, I listened to this quote from this guy, Byron Allen, who owned this company. And he, he said that, he talked to one of his friends that was an executive at another studio. And he said, hey, like, as a black man, how would you feel if all of the images that your white daughter saw from the day she was, because he has daughters, he has young, two black, young black girls. And he said, how would you feel if all of these stories that your young white daughter saw from the day she was born till the day she dies came from me, a black man, from a black perspective, if every single thing that she saw that helped shape who she thought she was, the images that she was represented as, all came from a black man, and that guy said, "Hell no," you know. And that's just, and that's the, just, just it's such a, it's so obvious. Of course, I want my kids for, I want to have control over the images that my children see because media has such an ability to paint 
it has such an ability to paint people, but it also has the ability to shape people and their identities and the way they see themselves in the world. If all we do is see like black people as like side characters or comic relief characters or criminals, like those are the only things that kids are going to see to aspire to. Like if I don't see any black superheroes, black doctors, black engineers, like black businessmen, what do you think I'm going to think that black people can be? Obviously, I'm only going to think that black people can either be like a criminal or they can be like a rapper or a basketball player. You know, my hope in like, general is, or, or rather like what my, what I do, my, like the way that I engage with the industry as a director is that um, whatever it is I'm doing should reflect the reality of the world. You know, yeah, uh, that, exactly. like n nothing more, nothing less. That that's how I, you know, deal with casting. Is when I'm casting, yeah, casting should reflect the reality of the world. Like I've had times casting where, yeah. uh, where, you know, a, a, a client has wanted an entirely white cast, and times where a client has wanted no white people in it. And in both cases, I said, yeah. "Hey, it's weird. This doesn't reflect reality." Yeah, it's weird. And, and that, that was part of the thing for me is that like, yeah, like, and it's so funny because these representations of the world and the way the media has presented it for so long and the way stories have been presented for the, the world that we live in, it feels like, yeah, they're, they're so disconnected from reality sometimes. It makes you really, really frustrated as a storyteller because you, one of the biggest things for me is just like, if you look at American culture right now, like the things that are sold and the thing, and this might be a tangent, but like the things that are sold and the things that are exported, like the American culture that is exported to the rest of the world is more often than not black culture. Absolutely. In some shape, way or form. I would say, That's I would 90s, argue absolutely. with anyone that the number one cultural export is black culture in america yeah. right Actually, if you're you know, talking I just said about the, i just said the late 90s i mean that's just not true i mean going back to jazz and all that i mean it, it's for 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 decades and yeah, decades and it's decades black and decades. dude jazz jazz blues all of americans culture and identity that is sold to the rest of the world is black culture you know no one's selling country <laughs> in japan or africa you know what i'm saying no offense like some country songs are cool but like even now, the coolest country song was in the last year was from a black can dude. I, can I can I give you a like, reason that I think for that? Um, I, I think black people well, are cool I, as shit. I think so much of the reason why we have created so many great things is because of being oppressed for hundreds of years. Yeah. I think that I totally agree. Uh, I agree. You know, I, I I think that it is it, it is that oppression that gave us no choice but to be creative um and, and and that's why so much greatness has come out of our culture yeah i totally 100 percent agree with that and i think yeah people that have struggles and they have gone through some things they have more vivid and complex stories to tell and also that's where creativity comes from and i think for me the idea of black ownership is not a matter of black people trying to control all black stories and trying to like be the the vanguards of black stories i think it's really the fact that we want the same opportunity to be able to shape the culture and the identities of other black people the same right 
that white people have had since the beginning of the time of beginning of time black people want to be able to control their story and their narrative the same way that white people have controlled social studies books and told stories from certain perspective the winning person's perspective we want that same opportunity and i think that's that's what it really really comes down to um and so dude this has been amazing talking to you and one one last question that we have that i always ask at the end of each show is uh if there was one incredibly legendary piece of advice that you would leave behind for future generations what would that be um i've got four <laughs> god damn it julia that's not how this works i've got four right, go you can pick you one four. you can do all four, four. um and, and no, this is this is for four. future generations of filmmakers specifically number yeah. one yeah you have to learn to write um and, and it's painful writing is really painful and it's it's probably the most painful thing that i have to do but uh what i didn't know in film school is that 95 percent of my job is writing and five percent of it is actually directing um number two is uh don't be distracted by what everyone else is doing and you know it really takes a long time to learn this and, and put this into practice and you know to be honest i you know only in the last couple of years have i really been able to start internalizing this is uh what you want to be doing is is not making what you know people want to watch right now but making what people will want to watch um yeah, you know, and that could be making what people will want to watch in a week. That could be making what people will want to watch in a couple of years. Uh, the next point is uh, you have to be flexible because the world that you want to be a part of may not exist when you get into it. You know, the the, the film industry that I trained to be a part of in college doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, the middle of the industry has been completely uh, torn to shreds. Uh, I mean, you know, we could go on, you know, forever about the changes and, and what the industry is now. Um, but being flexible and figuring out where the industry is going to be in the future. Uh, and then the final point, um, you know, is, is that as, as I said earlier, diversity means black people being able to do whatever the fuck they want. Diversity means black people being able to tell whatever stories they want to tell. Um, so, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I think uh, that goes for anyone. Don't let anyone pressure you into telling a story that doesn't feel right to you. Just, you know, go with your gut. Yeah. And I totally, I think the last one for me really resonates because you're right. Like it's the, the diversity, the diversity aspect is for me innately tied to freedom, right? And the freedom to be able to tell whatever story you are and the freedom to not be limited because of your race is part of that whole story and that whole narrative. And that's all, and that's all black people have ever wanted. They've always, we've always just wanted the freedom to walk down the street without being afraid of being killed by a police officer, the freedom to have a house or a loan for a house the freedom to start a business the freedom to make films and not be judged or not be not financed because it's a, it's not a black story it's not a good story right because it's a black story right and that's been proven wrong the, now like you said 
people understand that black people will go out and what watch films and black people watch films and Wakanda forever is now everybody Wakanda knows, forever. you know, like Wakanda <laughs> forever, you know, Disney for a long time would not make us a, a black superhero film and they made one and they made a shit ton of money. And now they're probably like, oh shit, that made a crap ton of money. Maybe we missed out on a lot of money by not doing this. And I think that's also the key. The key for us is I think economic inclusion is important and showing that black stories have value and that you can make a shit ton of money because at the end of the day people want to make things that are profitable and they want to tell stories that are great but also somebody's got to pay for those great stories especially on the bigger films i feel like and if you're trying to do something on a bigger scale like people need to understand that these black stories are incredible stories and these black stories are american stories america like american history is black history they are one in the same they are completely tied this together. country was built and off so of our separation backs. yeah and so to try to separate that is is you're just lying to yourself as an american right dude thank you so much for coming on the podcast this has been fantastic thank you. uh and this is uh that's it for legends of vfx did we talk Thanks, about man. any vfx <laughs> yeah, we totally talked about the we talked about this whole thing about we talked about Black Panther so exactly there True. you go that's the end of our interview series with Julian Marshall Julian is currently a director for Tool North America his film We Are George Floyd was recently selected to Vimeo's staff pick of the month you can find Julian at julianmarshall.tv Thanks so much for joining us this week. You can subscribe at Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a review. You can write to us on Twitter at Legends of VFX. You can also find links and show notes at legendsofvfx.com. Our show this week was produced by myself, Bilali Mack, and special thanks to Jack Larry for our music. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we know that... Things are tough right now. So please, please take some time to be kind to yourselves. Read a book if you can. And always remember that the pixels we bring into this world matter. Catch you next episode, legends.